Welcome to episode 2 of Race, Bordering and Disobedient Knowledge. My name is Amira Salihodin and I'm here today in Helsinki uh, with Nelly Rotsalainen who will tell us more about her research. So Nelly, could you tell in general terms to the public about what your research is about? Yes, thank you, Amira. So yeah, first I uh, I can say a little bit about myself. I'm a, one of the PhD candidates on the No Act project, which is the Intersectional Border Struggles and Disobedient Knowledge funded by the Academy of Finland. And from this project, I've been working on my PhD for the past two years. Um, and so in terms of my research, my research, in my research, I'm interested in how um, the research title is called Contesting Normative Whiteness in the Finnish Feminist Movement. And, and I'm interested in how actors who organize in feminist spaces and, and under the banner of feminism who do not themselves experience racism take up anti-racist practices as part of the work that they do. And so what that means for the general public is that, that I'm interested in a context like Finland where society is built on normative whiteness. How do people who understand discrimination and oppression from some angles through a feminist analysis, maybe they understand it through gender discrimination or homophobia or, or something like that. How do they incorporate an anti-waste analysis and, and what that what that what does that look like? Um, and how do are, how do actors in those spaces articulate their relationship to whiteness and anti-racism? Thank you for that. What has been some of the uh, interesting findings so far uh, in terms of your research? Well, um, as any researcher would probably say in this situation that I'd still very much doing the research. I have completed one article that I'm submitting, uh, resubmitting again this fall. And in that article, I looked at the Finnish Feminist Party, which was founded in 2016 and how that party ran its first cam- uh, first campaign in the municipal elections in 2017 and how the one of the big um, slogans or big missions of that campaign was uh, to have a city without racism uh, on, a, on a municipal level. So I think that some of the findings that are coming out of that indicate that while it's really good that feminist actors take up space and want to further anti-racism, that still it's difficult because of the societal climate at the time was really hostile towards feminist organizing, but also really hostile towards any anti-racist organizing. And there was a lot of racism and xenophobia in the Finnish society, politics and public sphere at the time. So I think that maybe a finding could be that these societal constraints influence the capacity to which actors are able to take up feminist and anti-racist space, but then also that that it, I don't know how to say this, but it's also important that the analysis ideally goes beyond just communicating about it, but permeates also the organizational structure of those actors that take up feminist space and advocate for anti-racism. And that it needs to be clear, hopefully in the future, that if you have, for example, a party program that talks about anti-racism, how, what that would mean in public if, or in practice if, the, if people were elected. How would the... Um, political goals transition into anti-racist practice upon election. Yeah. Uh, so I understand that like um, this research, you know, it was based on uh, municipal elections that happened quite some time ago. So with a lot of the changes that has happened um, in recent years, why is this research impactful at this time? That's a good question. 
I think that this research only becomes more and more impactful. I think that everyone who is involved in this NOACT project has done research that will have implications and practical applications just beyond academia also. For me, I think about this research currently in the context of many organizations, including the university, that are striving to incorporate anti-racist practice into their organizational structure. Also, a lot of companies are doing that, a lot of um, the private sector, public sector. And I think that a lot of this research coming out of this project, but also the research that I was doing could help organizations understand what it means to undertake anti-racist practice, especially from the majority position and especially as actors who benefit from white privilege. And you mentioned that, uh, you know, like uh, one of the implications of it could, you know, be the effect on the party program and things like that. What are the practical implications can come out of your research, do you reckon? Yeah, the second phase of my research involves interviewing actors or analyzing the data that I've interviewed with actors who are involved in anti-racist and feminist organizing who don't themselves experience racism. And I think that in those interviews, some of the, what will come out after I analyze them, this is my hypothesis, is that people don't really know how to take up anti-racist practice and don't really know how to negotiate the tension between taking up too much space as an actor who is white and benefits from white privilege, but then also is vocal and understanding that the destruction of white supremacy relies on white people also taking action. And I think that from those contradictions and tensions that come out in my research, I hope that there will be more practical applications for actors that they can then take up and not get bogged down by those questions and understand that people will make mistakes and the ultimate goal here is, like I said, the destruction of white supremacy that we're all implicated in. So mm. I'm hoping that that will be one. And I think that that has far-reaching uh, practical applications in terms of these feminist organizations or the feminist spaces that these people have been involved in, that they could take the research that I have done and their own participation in it and maybe apply it in the context that they are working in. But then also looking broader beyond just academia or beyond just feminist activist spaces. Mm. Thank you. Um, so the title of our podcast is Race, Bordering and Disobedient Knowledge. It, you know, like uh, the term disobedient knowledge is also uh, in the name of our research group. Um, what does disobedient knowledge mean uh, in your research? And what is, the, what is disobedient about your research? That's a good question. I, this is actually something that I have thought about a lot in the context of this research project since it began. I think that disobedient knowledge can refer to many things in the context of the research. I think it can be a methodological undertaking. It can be going against the grain of what's conventional in academia. But I also think that disobedient knowledge can be knowledge that goes against um, goes against societal power structures in a way. So I think that different people in this uh, research project have applied it differently, whether it be uh, disobedient knowledge coming from a person's subject position in society uh, or whether or not for me, I think at least in the context of this first first paper that I'm about to hopefully publish is a methodological choice. It's an autoethnography and I think that autoethnography gets a lot of <laughs> bad rep in the <laughs> in academia because it there are um, for a good reason, I think also, but I think that taking an insider position in a feminist organizing space that I was involved in and then looking critically at that is is a reflexive practice that I think is inherent in feminist research also. And I think that feminist research still, even though it is 
um, getting more and more and more mainstream in university is kind of a disobedient position or positionality to take, especially if that reflexivity carries throughout the research without it becoming so-called navel-gazing. Mm. And so I think that one one way to do disobedient knowledge is, is um, methodology. And other people in this research project have also used the idea of like participatory action research and things where the researcher's positionality isn't so self-evidently imbued with authority mm. and then and and that being in that context be disobedient and of course some discourses around critical whiteness studies or whiteness studies involve the idea that um that you as an actor who benefits from white privilege in society there's no other alternative but to be disobedient to that positionality mm-hmm. and constantly think about what that means for your research, but also for your activism, like how are you disobedient towards um, white supremacy? Um, what are some of the misconceptions? Are there any misconceptions that people have about your research? Hmm. Or something controversial, perhaps? Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> <laughs> First, I want to say that as a person who graduated with a master's in arts and gender studies, that has been just so a site that is so rife with misconceptions because I don't think people really understood throughout my career what gender studies means. I mean, I've been asked by a taxi driver for um, advice on fertility, for example, <laughs> in similar situations where gender isn't really under, or the, where gender studies background or feminist research isn't understood as like a quote unquote serious mm. position in university. But I think that what I touched on earlier, the use of autoethnography is one that creates controversy in academia. Um, it's difficult to execute well without it. It's difficult to outline, I think, the positionality of saying that I was intimately involved in something and now I'm producing research from that vantage point. And I think that mm-hmm. for a lot of people who aren't familiar with that autoethnography kind of seems like an easy way to get off the hook. Or also I've heard that it's a, like um, a quote unquote millennial tendency mm-hmm. in which which so-called millennials are just preoccupied with themselves through the idea of taking selfies and through the idea of putting themselves out there in a way that perhaps is a little bit strange for prior generations. And so I think that some people might consider that odd. Mm. Um, But I think that also looking critically at your own work comes from the feminist research background. And I think that even if it were like the (laughs) quote-unquote selfie of academia, I think that why not? I mean, if it is a is a generational reflex to do that, then why not problematize that? Mm-hmm. And yeah, and maybe also, I'm trying to think about the interviews that I conducted, what misconceptions people might have or some controversial ideas. I think that one idea that might be considered controversial is that people who are involved in feminist organizing often have this idea of themselves as very egalitarian. Mm-hmm. An understanding that they can kind of do no wrong, or especially the, con- the what Katrin Lundström calls the contradictory location of white women as being like simultaneously oppressed in some ways and simultaneously being the oppressor. Mm-hmm. And so then kind of calling in or calling out that positionality to be like your relevant minority position as a member of a gender or sexual minority or as a woman who's experienced sexual harassment or violence doesn't kind of let you off the hook for white privilege. And so I think that that oftentimes creates a lot of, well, instances of white fragility and and, and pushback. Mm. And I think especially, and this is just a hypothesis, but in Finland where feminist organizing 
at least until maybe the past 10, 15 years has gone unchallenged and has been very much invested in gender equality feminism, at least on the state level and the NGO level. And bringing the intersectional analysis to that has been something that black and brown activists in Finland have been doing. Yeah. And so since you asked about the misconceptions around this research, one of the other things that came to mind is that um, the theoretical framework that I'm working with, especially in this first article that looks at the campaign of the Finnish Feminist Party, is affect theory. And I think that when I try to explain that to people outside of academia, they're like, first of all, what does affect mean? And second of all, when I explain it, they're like, so you're analyzing emotions <laughs> or, mm. or, or cultural under what it is is the cultural meanings and understandings that relate to emotions and And I think that that for some people can be considered kind of um, research that isn't serious mm-hmm. or research that is like unquantifiable in some way. But I, but the, theory, the field of affect theory is very big and established already. But I think that's something that outside of academia, it's hard to talk about. And in the context of this research, I'm looking at especially how, what kind of like affect circulator, like Sarah Ahmed says, stick around the use of anti-racism and racism in the um, public space. So the Feminist Party had these posters that said a city without racism. And then those posters were tarnished by people um, who, you know, um, defaced them in many different ways, having Nazi symbolism and, and slogans on them. And I think that that word racism was so potent in that. And that's why it caused this big emotional reaction. So I'm looking at in what context racism is mobilized. And because then... Then the message obviously was that look at how badly this was dealt with by the right wing mm. <laughs> um, activists and white supremacists or however you want to call them anti-immigrant organizing, and so then it kind of reinforced the message that this message is needed. And mm-hmm. so I'm I'm wondering about in what context organizations strategically deploy slogans like something something without racism or how racism is used and what kind of like meaning stick to it because. As we know from prior research, from research in this, in this project, the idea that Finland has somehow gone without racism sticks to some parts of society or that Finland still has this some sort of innocence or egalitarian notion of itself. And then suggesting that we need a city without racism it means that there is racism here. And so I think that mm. what kind of, um, yeah, cultural, <laughs> emotional understandings are are related to that. And also at the time, now we have um, everyone saying that they're feminist, which is great. Um, and we have a government that has intersectionality as a word in its gender equality program. But at the time, the Finnish government declared that they don't need a gender equality program at all, mm-hmm. let alone one that has <laughs> such progressive ideas as intersectionality in it. And I think that in the research that I'm looking at, the word feminism was still one that was effectively potent in a way that really galvanized people into two different directions, either like hell yes, we need this, or like, no, those people need to be quieted down and this is a threat to some understandings of hegemonic whiteness and hegemonic uh, masculinities. Mm. So yeah, I think that affect theory is very interesting, but sometimes I find it a little bit difficult to explain outside of academia what what, what it is that I'm actually doing. And I think it leads to a lot of misconceptions. Thank you uh, for that. Um, so what can somebody who wants to do similar kind of research learn from your work? That's a good question. I think that one of the things that will come out of the future of this research is something that someone might, if someone is interested in researching their own peer group, for example, because I 
am doing this research because I have been involved in a lot of different forms of feminist organizing in Helsinki and in Finland. And now I'm kind of interviewing people who I have met through those contacts and who have contacted me and want to partake and participate in this research. But that's kind of a... um interesting positionality to negotiate. Mm-hmm. And so I think that if someone were doing similar research in which they were interested in people who occupy their own own relative positions would be how to carry reflexivity, but how to also carry sensitivity towards the research participants, especially if some of the findings are ones that might, you know, cause them to <laughs> reconsider some of the things that they have thought or said as part of the feminist organizing this ties into the idea of um, a little bit to white fragility and stuff like that. So, and then also maintaining some sort of distance and then negotiating the positionality that um, the researcher inherently has authority. Mm-hmm. And even if we try to partake in participatory action research, for example, it's still good to acknowledge that and to keep that in mind and that the researcher ultimately has the responsibility over the research. And then the other thing is looking at, I'm hoping that as my career progresses and I'm also a writer. So I think that one of the things that interests me about autoethnography is also the idea that you can creatively, you can use creative writing in in an academic context to bring out something that would otherwise be lost. And so I think that furthering ideas of qualitative research that have to do with art and poetry and and creative writing and a more essay style that's perhaps also more accessible to people Mm. is something that I'm interested in. And I hope that I hope I hope to find a community around that, and I hope that maybe through my research, if I'm able to engage in that, people could also learn something. Thank you. Um, so, what's the next thing that you plan to do? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think that for a lot of us who are in academia, especially early career researchers, that question is one that gives us pause. It's not guaranteed that we will have funding, and for example. My funding is ending for this project and I didn't get funding for my own project in the round of funding that happened this spring. And of course, the fall is something to look forward to, but I think this ties into a broader conversation about academia and the position of researchers and especially early career and PhD researchers Mm. and the kind of precarity of livelihood that comes with that and the constant stress. And I think I want to like highlight that it is not about whether or not a person is resilient enough to like bob along in the academic currents, which are, which are tumultuous and uncertain. And that sometimes people do have to make choices that lead them away from academia on intervals just so they can make sure that they get paid. And so, I don't know, I'm, I'm wondering about this question in general mm. and, and my peers who are PhD researchers who are in this funding cycle and and then to know also that the university isn't really invested in funding the research and yeah so <laughs> I don't know maybe do you, I don't know if you have any as a fellow PhD researcher do you have any anything you want to say about this too I mean uh, well I'm currently unfunded for for my research so you know like uh, I suppose I'm I mean uh more rocky boat <laughs> compared mm-hmm. to you uh, in this uh, academic life at the moment. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a tough one. So, yeah, and I think that it's especially tough for us, us researchers who look at, whose research wants to do something like disobedient knowledge, who wants to do something like challenge existing power structures, and then to still be tied into that system. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering, 
how to kind of problematize the authority that comes with academia as a platform to stand on. Mm. Because I think that that's one of the reasons, honestly, why we're here today to think the, the, the idea that an academic prestige can lend a platform to something that we both think is important and needs to be heard. Because mm-hmm. other than that, we'd be doing it outside of academia. But I'm still, I, I'm kind of wondering about that. <laughs> doing and, things outside of academia. Yeah, I'm wondering about how long are we going to legitimate this institution that ultimately is against us. <laughs> Sorry to put it that way. That's a big question to us, Nelly. But I suppose, you know, it's also, um, it's also, you know, part of the ideas that we are trying to unpack through our research project as well, you know, like uh, this whole idea of disobedient knowledge, you know, um, so the types of uh, academic knowledge that is, you know, seen as the only legitimate form of knowledge um, in all aspects of life, you know, in all parts of society. Mm-hmm. And how do we navigate that um, as you as you said before? Definitely. And I think it's that's why it's good that a lot of the um, research coming out of this research project is invested in this kind of revolving door between academia and society mm-hmm. and, and doing participatory action research forms where the idea is that this knowledge can't get lodged into academia, that it has to be in, in conversation, like a polyphonic conversation, not just a dialogue mm-hmm. <laughs> outside of the academia and whether or not it, it's disseminated through this podcast, for example, or like a poem that I might read or like, mm-hmm. or what um, Amin is doing, for example, with involving students um, in, de- in developing an anti-racist app and stuff. And so I think that, and there will be more about that on this podcast later, later as we delve into the research from other, other researchers in this. But I think that that in its way is inherently a disobedient posture to take towards university, even if we rely on university structures mm. to get it through. So it's a it's a it's contradictory contradictory, but I think that it's it's also a good sign. I think that we got the, got this funding for this, and I do trust that this research will be carried out, especially in terms of your research, which we will hear about in in the next episode when we talk about it. Yeah, and um, well, hopefully, you know, we will get continued funding <laughs> to to do both of our research um, so that we can further, you know, uh, unpack these questions um, through our research. So thank you so much, Nelly, um, for expanding more about your research um, in this episode. Um, and we'll look forward to more episodes on this podcast on race, bordering and disobedient knowledge. Thank you, Amira. And for anyone listening to this, if there is something that piqued your interest or maybe something that you found controversial, I really look forward to hearing from you. And my email door, so to speak, is open. And you can email me at nelly.roatsalainen at helsinki.fi. And um, I would love to be in contact. Thank you. Thank you.